The lesson is from the book of Zechariah, chapter 14. A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day, without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name, the only name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us now by your spirit, open our hearts and our minds to your word, and your word to our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. I read this um, week before last, one of the columnists in The Guardian uh, started uh, their column uh, with these words, quote, I've had a horrible feeling lately that the world is sliding down its final slope with the brakes off. Filthy seas, burned and ruined forests, vanishing species, flattened cities, millions of displaced people, desperate refugees, and endless murderous wars, it is difficult not to abandon hope. And I would imagine that will resonate, at least to some degree, with some of us, perhaps most of us, this morning. There is, is there not, a darkness that is uh, particularly... Um, for want of a better word, visible at the moment. I guess Paris, in a sense, summarizes, encapsulates it all, doesn't it? That city that has seen both the catastrophe of, uh, uh, of terrorism and also has been dealing, of course, in this last week with the potential catastrophe of uh, climate change, our misuse of the planet. 
We see that darkness without in all sorts of ways, but we also feel it within, that darkness within and the battles and the struggles and the sufferings that come our way may well have come your way in 2015. Many of us will come to the end of the year with uh, broken uh, resolutions, uh, with struggles that we had hoped to win, perhaps still ongoing, some victories, yes, but also some setbacks, I would imagine. And it is easy, like the columnists, to lose hope, to lose heart, to think, well, you know, the world won't change, it'll go from bad to worse. And to think, well, I won't change, the relationship I'm in won't change, this thing that I've been struggling with this year, and I don't seem to have made much progress, and that won't change. And the danger is, of course, when that starts to happen, when we start to lose heart, is it can breed a sort of a resignation with the status quo, can't it? Well, next year will be the same as this year. It can breed an uneasy conformity with the way things are. It can breed an uneasy conformity with the way I am. I battle and I struggle. Things, it is not one thing, but it's another. It can breed an uneasy conformity with the status quo. Friends, Advent is the season in which we seek to shape our story in the light of a bigger story. In the light of God's story, it's the season when we seek to shape our story in the light of the final chapter of our story. The final chapter, of course, is the most significant chapter of life because it is the culmination. It is the culmination of God's plan for us and for his world. It's where we're heading. And the final chapter must frame our present. We've got to use the final chapter that God gives us glimpses into to make sense of the details of life now, to make sense of the details of the world now, if we're not to conform to the status quo. The final chapter tells us what's important in life now because it tells us where this world, where we are heading. And we get a glimpse of that final chapter in Zechariah 14. We're jumping straight into Zechariah 14. That's not always easy. But what we get here, it's a great Advent reading because it gives us a glimpse of the final chapter. I can summarize Zechariah 14 in two words. Uh, God wins. Essentially, that's Zechariah 14 in a nutshell. God wins. To put a little bit more flesh on it, Zechariah, who, as Andrew said, was writing around about 520 BC. He is looking forward to the advent of a new day. This idea of a new day runs all the way through the chapter. It appears over half a dozen times. A day will come, the day of the Lord, this day, this day. He's looking forward to the advent of a new day when the Lord will come and he will establish a new kingdom. That essentially is Zechariah 14. He will come and he will establish uh, a new kingdom. As you read through Zechariah 14, and uh, we can only get as far as verse 9, although not much new is added in the second half of the chapter, what you discover is that when the king comes, and there it is, I've I've tried to sort of illustrate it a little bit, uh, Zechariah looks forward to the future, the advent. On that day, God's king will come to establish God's kingdom, and it will be a day of reckoning. It'll be a day of rescue. It'll be a day of renewal, and it'll be a day of rule. It'll be a day of reckoning, rescue, renewal, and rule. Now, it's not an easy chapter, but to begin to make sense of it, I think I need to sort of pull into a lay-by very briefly and say something about how Old Testament prophecy is often fulfilled. 
See, the Old Testament prophets, they are looking far ahead to this coming day when God comes as king to rule. And at that distance, it looks a bit like that mountain range. You know, from a distance, the mountain range looks uh, sort of flat. But as you approach the mountain range, you realize that there are mountains behind the mountains. And between those mountains, there are great valleys. And so what you find when Jesus Christ comes and declares that with his coming, the kingdom of God is at hand, he then goes on to say, but this day that I bring in, this kingdom I am coming to bring in, will happen in essentially two stages. And here it is. It'll happen partially with my first coming, what I've come to do in my first coming. It'll happen partially through my life, death, and resurrection. There will be partial fulfillment of that which the prophets foresaw. And then there will be a day when I will return and I will perfectly fulfill what it is the prophets foresaw. So you get this quite often in Old Testament prophecy, this double fulfillment. Partially fulfilled in Christ's first coming, perfectly fulfilled when he comes again. The day of the Lord we see is actually an extended period of time. Begins with his first coming, climaxes with his second coming. And as you have that in mind, I hope we will see, actually with our final slide, which just makes that point, we, I think, begin to make sense of what's happening in Zechariah 14, and we can begin to see how it makes sense of our lives now and our world now. You see, we live between those two poles. We live between Christ's first coming and his second coming, and it's that that gives shape to our story. Let's come back to those uh, four R's that I spoke about. First of all, when the king comes, it'll be a day of reckoning. Did you see that, verses 2 and 3? He says, I'll gather the nations against Jerusalem to fight against it. And then, verse 3, I will go out and fight against those nations, all nations, as I fight on the day of battle. You see, when God comes, it'll be a day of reckoning. Injustice and oppression and all that oppose God will not triumph, God says. that The ultimate, the final chapter is the time at which God triumphs. And that is always presented in the Bible as good news. Injustice will not have the final say, justice will. Uh, God's enemies will not have the final say, the God of love will. It's always good news in the Bible, but it's never comfortable news. It's never comfortable news. And it's not comfortable because all of us have played a part in the darkness we see around us. Jesus makes that point time and time again. That when we're, when we're tempted to point the finger at them over there and say, if you could just remove them, the world would be a better place. Jesus says, ah, come on. Think about your own part in the darkness. We all play a part in the darkness that surrounds us. We see that played out, of course, in Jesus' first coming supremely. It's been well said that given half a chance, man will murder his maker. And that's precisely what we see with the coming of Jesus. Here comes this great king, this lord of light and life, this great man of goodness and grace. And after three years, the world nails him to a cross. And Jesus says, do you remember in Luke, I think it's Luke 21, he says, look, because, he's speaking to the Jewish nation at this point, because you have rejected me, your means of salvation, God will reject you. And that happens at one level in, I think, AD 70, when the Romans surround, Rome, uh, surround Jerusalem and they destroy it, I think that is partially fulfilling verse 2. 
Uh, And that, in a sense, marks the end of Jerusalem geographically being God's place. But of course, Israel is no more sinful than the Romans, who colluded to put Jesus to death. No more sinful than us, who by nature put Jesus to death in our hearts all the time. And so, verse 3, there'll be a day when God will judge all the nations who oppose Jesus, who crucify him in their hearts, who refuse him as king. And we live between those two poles. We live between AD 70 when uh, God judged uh, Jerusalem, which in itself is a glimpse of the judgment to come when Jesus returns at his second coming and he judges all who oppose him. And that means that Advent is always, historically, it's always been a time of sober reflection. Advent has always been a time uh, of sober reflection as we anticipate God's coming judgment. Church of England puts it like this in one of their liturgy books. Uh, It has always been a time to challenge the modern reluctance to confront the theme of divine judgment. Uh, That is what Advent is as a season. We like the idea of justice, of course. We just don't like it coming too close to home. And uh, one of the Advent liturgies says this, when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and he will disclose the purposes of our hearts. Therefore, it says, in the light of Christ, let us confess our sins. That is, Advent is a season of repentance. If uh, there's anybody here this morning who wouldn't call themselves a Christian, who knows that at this stage they're investigating Christian things, but they're not yet committed to the Lord Jesus as king, please hear what God is saying to you this morning through the prophet Zechariah. He's showing you just a glimpse of the future. And he's showing you the glimpse of the future precisely so that you can change your life in the present. He's giving you a glimpse of what might be so that for you it doesn't have to be that way. You see, if we refuse to be part of God's kingdom now, we won't be part of his kingdom then when he returns and perfects it. So it's an opportunity to turn and to submit to him who is king. And as we'll see in a minute, it's to submit to the one who has moved heaven and earth to win us back. But I want to say also that for us who are following the Lord Jesus, who have been perhaps following him for many years, Advent is also a season of repentance. It's also a season of repentance for us. It's a time to reflect on our own contribution to the darkness we see around us. We do so as those whose sins have been forgiven, but that shouldn't make us any more comfortable with our sin or blasé. Season of repentance. But... It is possible to face our failings and to confess with confidence precisely because Jesus has left a gap between his two comings, precisely because he gives the world chance and time to know him as saviour before he comes as judge. And it's to know him as saviour that Zechariah now turns, do you see, uh, verses 3 to 5. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, that's a little mountain just outside of Jerusalem, that lies uh, before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northwards and the other southwards, and you shall flee 
through the valley of my mountain or to the valley of my mountain. In other words, do you see what he's saying? He's saying when God comes, not only will it be a day of reckoning, but it'll be a day too of rescue. These verses, I think, are pictures of God literally moving heaven and earth to open up a valley, to open up a highway of escape from his judgment. It's, it's a road of rescue, a valley of rescue, if you like. And again, we see it played out in this way, don't we? When Jesus came first, he went to a cross, not to a judgment seat. What is he doing on that cross? Well, I'll tell you what he's doing on that cross. He's taking verses 1 to 3 upon himself. That's what he's doing. God's judgment, God's coming judgment on, on the world, he is taking it upon himself that those who put their faith in him might escape it. He's opening up a valley of rescue from his coming judgment. Do you remember what happens? You read Matthew's gospel, the, the, the account of Jesus' death at the end of Matthew's gospel. There's this extraordinary account that Matthew puts in only Matthew when Jesus dies of an earthquake and rocks splitting. I've often wondered what that's about, but I wonder, actually, I wonder whether that's an allusion to Zechariah 14. I wonder if that's Matthew's way of saying that as Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he, he moved heaven and earth. The rocks split. A highway was formed. A way of rescue. A way of escape from God's coming judgment for all who turned to him. It's interesting, isn't it, that where is it that Jesus stands after his resurrection as he ascends into heaven? Where is it he plants his feet? It's the Mount of Olives. Jesus has forgiven our sin. He's taken its penalty. He's taken God's judgment and, his, and uh, the power of sin upon himself. We are not yet free from sin's presence. That's where the road will end when he comes again. And he will raise his people with sin-free bodies. And we live between those two poles. If we're following Jesus, we live between the pole of having sins forgiven, having been rescued from God's coming judgment, but awaiting our sin-free bodies when we are raised to be with him. Advent then is a time to remember how God has in Christ moved heaven and earth to put us on the road of rescue. And how he continues to move heaven and earth to lead us down that road to safety with him when he returns and to raise us with sin-free bodies. I want to say, friends, that is such a freeing thing to grasp this Advent. I was reading this, so one writer put it like this, very helpfully. He said this, think about this. At the time Jesus went to the cross, you had yet to be born, which means that 100% of your sins were future. Jesus Christ, fully knowing all your future failures, went to the cross and took your punishment regardless. And that means that God will never respond to you in shock or disgust. Because he knew in advance what he was dying for. One of the most comforting messages in the entire Bible is that in all your sin, weakness, and failure, you do not have to hide from God. If the Bible does anything, it welcomes you out of your self-imposed prison of fear and shame. The Bible welcomes you to step out of the darkness and into the light, to face reality honestly and with hope. If God's love covered your future sins and it cast out the fear of future punishment, that same love 
should cast out the fear of present failure. Do you see? No need to hide. If we look back to the cross and see God moving heaven and earth to forgive us our sin by taking the reckoning upon himself, if we look forward to see this safe route from judgment open to his people, then that should free us to be honest about our sin in the present. We call our sin to mind in the season of Advent, not because as Christians we're into morbid self-introspection, because we love talking about sin. No, we do it because we want to experience afresh that heaven and earth moving love and power, that rescuing grace from sin that we experience when we expose our sin to the God of grace. We want to allow God to make us more free as we expose our sin to the healing power of his grace. It's a time of reckoning. It'll be a time of rescue. Third, it'll be a time of renewal. On that day, verses, uh, where are we? We're verses six to eight. On that day, there'll be no light, no cold, no frost. It'll be a unique day, no need to the Lord. Neither day nor light, but at evening time, there'll be light. On that day, living waters will flow from Jerusalem. It's a picture of renewal. When God comes, it'll be a day of renewal. It'll be a day of renewal personally for people, and it'll be a day of renewal globally for creation. Much of the language here picked up in Revelation 21 and 22, in fact, if you know those very famous chapters. And again, this helps to explain what's happening, doesn't it, on the slide there. At his first coming, Jesus promised all who come to him, do you remember, streams of living water. That's what he promised the woman at the well in John 4. In other words, the Holy Spirit who brings with him the water of life that brings life to the dead. And in his second coming, he will renew the heavens and the earth and renew us perfectly. And do you remember what runs through the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation? It's that river, that living water. Advent is a time to say yes afresh to the indwelling Holy Spirit of God who renews us and produces his fruit in us. Advent is a time afresh to look for that love, that joy, that peace, that patience, that kindness, that goodness, that faithfulness, that gentleness, that self-control that the Holy Spirit brings. These things are not just a duty. They are our destiny. That is what renewal looks like in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what his living water brings These are his gifts to us. Advent is a season to ask ourselves, are we living in a way that anticipates our growth in these things? Is this how I measure success in my life? I was listening to Martin Lewis, you know, uh, who runs, um, is it Money Saving Expert or something like that? Anyway, he was on the radio and he was talking about how January is such a dark month because people suddenly face the credit card bills. They've run up in the effort to make the perfect Christmas. And it's striking, isn't it? We live in a very thirsty world. People are desperate uh, to discover life in all its fullness, and many think that it can be done by trying to create the perfect Christmas and to buy the perfect gift. And here is it promised, life in all its fullness. Not through gifts that we can buy, but through the gift of God's living water that is freely given to all who thirst. When Jesus comes, uh, he offers that renewing living water And when he comes again, he'll renew this world. God cares about his creation, and we should too. 
that's the way the world is heading. The world is heading to a new heaven, a new earth, a renewal of, the, of this earth. And therefore, we should be those who live in the light of that. When we grow weary uh, recycling or turning off dripping taps or uh, whatever it is that we do, turning off lights, and we think, what possible difference can that make compared to the billions of tons of carbon dioxide global industry is pumping in uh, to the atmosphere. We say this to ourselves, don't we? We look at the future and we say, it may or it may not, what I'm doing may or may not change the world, but one day God will change the world. And what I'm called to do is to live my life as an act of protest. Uh, to show by what I am doing that the world is not supposed to be like this and one day it won't be like that. So I will turn off the dripping tap and I will turn off the lights, whether it makes a great deal of difference or not, because I'm living for a different king. I'm living for a different kingdom, the one that is to come when this world is renewed and make perfect. Finally, rule, verse 9. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there'll be one Lord and his name, the only name. When God comes, he will establish his rule. Of course, he did that when he came first, didn't he? Through his death, his resurrection, he ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives and established his rule. But it is contested and it is opposed. But when he comes again, his rule will be uncontested and unopposed. And so Advent is a time to reassess whether his rule in our lives is uncontested whether we are giving over every part of our lives to his rule as we will do when he perfectly uh, reigns and returns. Advent is a time to yield our hearts in undivided love and our lives in undivided service. For Zechariah, of course, this was all future. He had to build his life on nothing but promise. But we live after the first coming of the king. The kingdom has been partially fulfilled Jesus said he would die for forgiveness, he would rise from the dead, and then he would return to perfect his kingdom. He's done one and two, so we can be sure he'll do three. So this is a season of repentance. Perhaps for that decisive first time, and to know the joy of sins forgiven and of judgment taken away, perhaps afresh, rejoicing in the God who is moving heaven and earth in love and in power to free us from sin in and through every circumstance of life. And Advent is a season to recommit to the renewing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, his life-giving water that gifts us the fruit of renewal, which is life in all its fullness. God, give us grace so to do. Amen.